in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. There's a painting that's hung on the wall. And this painting has caused millions and millions of viewers to just sort of stop in their tracks and look at it. Millions of people have looked at this painting and found something resonant in their hearts. Here's the painting. What feelings does this painting evoke within you? Don't be shy, speak up. Longing, what else we got? Don't be, don't be uh, fearful now. Shout it out. Thank you. Uncertainty. I heard two voices there. What do we have? Lonely. Lo- lonely. What else? Hard. Was that right? Did I get that right? Hard. Hungry. Hungry. Desolate. Did I hear loveless? Helpless. Thank you. Helpless. Wonderful. What did you say? Hopeful. Hopeful. Ian, what do you got? Tired. Tired. For the <laughs> oh, Rob Fleming. See me afterward, Rob. <laughs> Disconnected. Very good. Wow. Any more? Sad. Thank you. Weak. Ostracized. Ooh. Banished. Is that or did you say famished? Banished. Thank you. Wow. Who needs dictionary.com when you got a team like this? Any others? These are wonderful words. Thank you. The Gospel of Luke tells this story in chapter 19. Jesus is walking through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and, and he sees a man named Zacchaeus. And as Jesus is walking there, by this point in the story, everything is headed to Jerusalem. There's great crowds surrounding him. There's excitement in the air. They, they know that something big is happening. They're not quite sure what this whole Jesus movement is about. And a man scurries up a tree and is like hanging on the top of a tree just so he can see what's going on when Jesus comes by. There's this intense longing or hunger within this man named Zacchaeus who just happens to be a tax collector. 
He's hanging on this branch. He's looking as Jesus passes by. And then the crowds of people, they start to murmur, they start to talk, and they start to do what crowds of people do. They start to talk about this man, Zacchaeus, throwing insults at him, making fun of him, right? And because in the ancient world, a tax collector is not a very popular role to play, right? Kind of like us saying uh, the politician, right? Or the IRS, the man who works for the IRS, right? It has this loaded weight in that culture of a tax collector. Because in this ancient world, there was already taxes going on in Palestine, in the place of Israel. They would pay their temple taxes. But in this world, Rome was sort of the power, the superpower on the rise. And as Rome expanded its, its sort of military movement across the world, its, its roads across the world, they demanded taxes of Palestine. And one of its tactics was to hire local Palestinians, local Israelites, local Jewish people to say, hey, you know the Jewish people, so why don't you collect the taxes for us? It'll be good for both of us. And so you can see why these people were hurling their insults at Zacchaeus. He was a man who had grown wealthy off of the Jewish people's backs, off of local farmers. He had grown wealthy. So you can see this angst in the story. Zacchaeus climbed high up in the tree. Jesus is walking through and the people are mumbling. This man, this man who sort of has collaborated with the superpower of the day, this superpower being Rome, who is taking our land and taxing us increasingly higher amounts. These people, these Romans, they're squelching life as we know it in Palestine. So there's Zacchaeus up in the tree, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And I wonder a couple questions this week. Why is it so easy for us to see differences in each other instead of similarities? Why when we look at other human beings do we automatically start doing this, this sizing up thing, this thing of like, oh, well, they're different than me because of this, because of my age, because of whatever, instead of recognizing the common humanity in us all? Why do we do this automatically, this us versus them? Why do we seem to be really good at looking down upon people instead of looking through their eyes to see how the world is? And this dynamic uh, of sort of what I wanna call it laddering, right? We've got this ladder and we've got these rungs that define our world and we put people in their proper rung and of course, ourselves are on the top of this rung, right? And we do this laddering over and over, sizing up. And this laddering causes this great disconnection. It causes us not to see the world, but to sort of stand apart and be disconnected from human beings instead of deeply connected. So psychologists call this, um, this dynamic in our human nature, after studying all these samples of how human beings interact, the Lake Wobegon effect. And this Lake Wobegon effect is off of the Garrison Keillor fictional city. And the, the slogan of the city goes like this, all the women are good looking, all the men are strong, and all the children above average. And so it's this, this idea that we are all, this Lake Wobegon effect is this idea that we all view ourselves as superior to others. And then we build our identity off of wronging them or what I call like the ritual of wronging. Of like every time we meet someone, we sort of size them up, put them on their rung and then our life is good. And so we have this way and it, it's often very, very painful and separating. And, and we do this in our families. 
We do this in our home. Every one of us knows that uncle or that aunt or that person that we're not going to invite to the Thanksgiving or we invited him and it's going to be terribly awkward, right? Because they are the us versus them. They are on the lower rungs. We live in a latter world where we put people on certain rungs and we put ourselves above them and this is how it goes with human folk. I think this is why when we read uh, news articles about the 23-year-old superstar who is a multimillionaire football player and does something dumb in a bar in Denver, we're like, oh my gosh. And it's like when you take a minute, you're like, he's 23 years old with a million dollars. Like, I know what I did with my student loan check once I got it. And it was like 25 bucks, right? I mean... And we wonder why we do this to people was we put these celebrities on the higher rung in our culture. And then, and so this dynamic, this Lake Wobegon effect, it's the reason why we all speed and think we can get away with it, right? Surely they won't catch me, you know? It, it's even the way, like, like um, we, we know so much about what cigarettes and smoking do to us, right? But still there are people who have smoked for like 20, 30 years and say, well, it won't get to me, right? Lake Wobegon effect. We somehow think we are superior and build our value based on this ritual of runging. Our lives feel better somehow by putting others on a lower rung. And the, the difficult part of this is when it comes to home. Because when we start to do this at home, when we start to talk about only our differences and not our similarities, we create this huge dislocation, disconnection, this, this huge um, patterns of pain within our own family systems and our own home life. And I, I absolutely love the movie A River Runs Through It. And there are these movies that we watch in our life that just these scenes, and there's a scene in this movie that I've never really understood until this week. And the scene is, is remarkable because Norman McLean, if you'll remember, this story is about a, a family in Montana and the, the, the dad is the pastor of the church. It's 1927. It's like the heyday of the church in America, right? And he's the pastor of this church, and he has two boys, and it's this journey in Montana. And the oldest son, he goes away to school at Dartmouth University. So he leaves Montana for like Ivy School League life, and this is the, this rung. His, he is accepted in his father's eye for going to this back school back east. And the scene comes right towards the beginning of the movie where it's been six years. He finished his bachelor degree and his master's degree, but he's back home for the summer. And dad invites him into his office. And you're like, oh, this is just not good right away. Dad is in his study. His books are rounding him. The big leather chair and the son is sitting there because you know what's going to happen. The infamous, what are you going to do with your life talk is about to happen in this movie plot. And so what, what the dad says in this just intensely awkward moment, it's like the office in this movie scene, but before the office was the office. Are you with me? It's all kinds of awkwardness and the son and dad are exchanging these glares with one another. And the dad says this, um, no one, everyone around here knows about your achievement, meaning his education. And then the dad looks him in the eye and says, so to what end will you put this achievement? Oh, right. You're like, I don't know if you've ever been there after college. And it's like, you have no idea what you want to do. And your dad or mom or another person is like, what are you going to do with your life? And it's like the worst question ever, right? Because there's all this pressure. You have no idea what to say. And, and the son replies by saying, I've been considering the forest service. 
Okay, this is not the response dad wanted in case, you, in case you're like incredibly sitting there with like this loving eyes. No, you don't go to Dartmouth to like chop down trees for the rest of your life, right? And so, um, so his dad responds very quickly, as a career? And this conversation starts to get heated up and the son, just his face is just absolutely stone-faced by now. You can tell he's devastated. The dad is just missing him on every lever and the son says, for the summer. And the dad breathes, and, and then there's this really, really awkward moment. Just seems like it's forever on the screen. Dad's looking at son, and this runging, you can tell dad is not happy. Dad has his son on this rung, and the son is not okay with this laddering that's going on. And, and, um, and then Norman finally says, I'm not absolutely sure yet what I'm going to do with my life. And there's this deep honesty. And the dad says right away, well, you've had six years to become sure. <laughs> You're like, oh no, here it comes, here it comes, right? And so then the dad gets up. He can't stand the conversation in this room anymore. The tension is so thick. He looks out the window and he says, have you considered an advanced degree? Law, medicine, ministry. And you see what's happening in the family here. He's wronging his son, this ritual of wronging. He's putting him on this ladder because this is his son. And then the son is absolutely dejected. They have totally missed one another in this conversation. And the son says, I've applied for several teaching positions with absolutely no emotion, with no energy and no passion, and the, son, and the father lights up and says, oh, that's very good, a teacher, yes, a professor. And you see this missing each other, this ritual of wronging that goes on in our culture. And this, this scene fascinates me by the way we do this with one another. We have these expectations and these hopes. Zacchaeus hurries down the tree, and Zacchaeus and Jesus eat a meal together breaking all the laddering rules of the ancient world, right? This is a tax collector. This is not someone you're supposed to be in his home. And it doesn't tell us what happened at that meal. It doesn't tell us uh, what it was exchanged. But all of a sudden, Zacchaeus in this story tells us, uh, Jesus, wherever I have wronged anyone, I want to make amends. And not only that, but I'm going to give away half of my wealth and give it to the poor. And then this beautiful scripture says this. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. So this big word, this, this is like the conclusion of the story. This Zacchaeus, this tax collector, gives up his wealth, makes amends for anything he's done over a meal. And, and Jesus says, today salvation has come. This big word, salvation, it basically means salvation is a life that's filled and overflowing with love. So it means that in every crack and crevice of this man's soul, love, grace began to emanate through it. That this man has experienced something new. And, and notice what Jesus does here. Jesus invites this man to put down his ladder. And Jesus will do this in story after story after story. If we had time, Jesus takes our ladders of our own cultural making, all the wronging that we do to everyone in our society, all the people, all the difference that we do, and he says, put it down. Lay down the ladder. And it's only when we lay down the ladders that we can see what's common in our humanity with one another. It's only when we push past our ritual of wronging can we truly form our lives under what's true and what's right. We can see one another for who we really are. 
This started to really make sense to me this week. This ladder that I carry around with me and laying it down so I can stop my simple judgment, so I can stop this us versus them, so I can truly listen to others. It made sense of this passage in the Gospel of John that I've, I've wondered about for a long time. This passage says, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then it goes right into this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And it's, it's this amazing passage of like, Jesus dies to, to end the laddering. Jesus ends to die, to, to end us putting our value on based on who we are in relation to each other. Jesus says, everyone has value. Everyone has worth. Everyone has value. So lay the ladders down. Because we're living in a new world now where our simple ways of handling our differences are silly and are over. And the cross is now the symbol of love, the symbol of this incredible um, outwardly focused love that allows us all to see that our worth is no longer in our value with one another, but our worth is in laying it down. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal that the very symbol of our faith where we find our value in the story and in our lives is around a meal, around a table with family where we break the bread and where we share the cup. And this meal, this value that we're giving is that God loves us no matter what, no matter who we are. This is the gift of unconditional love. So our value is not in the ladder. Our value is when we lay it down and look in one another's eyes and receive the gift that we are loved because we are loved because we are loved the bread and the cup, the reminder that our world is the way we conceived it is over and that a new world is being formed every time we eat a meal with one another. Our call to the common table, our call to a common humanity is about receiving the gift at the table and seeing one another in all their human, in all their humanity, in all their aches and all their pains that we all carry with us. Andrew White was 31 years old when he painted the painting called Christina's World. He lived next door and he watched Christina, a woman who had polio, whose muscles were deteriorating as time passed. And as he looked out his window and he saw Christina, he gave the world this gift. He allowed his own self and all his judgments, he allowed himself to lay the ladder down and to paint humanity in all its aches, and all its pains, and all its struggles, overall, this painting is a painting of allowing us a peek into Christina's way of life without wronging her, without putting value on her, but looking at the desperation and the longing and the loneliness and the ostracization and the banishment, allowing us to see that don't we all feel those things at times in our homes? Haven't we all felt those in different places in our society? So what if Christina is this symbol? It's a symbol for every one of us who has ever felt ostracized by this ritual of wronging that we do over and over again. And what if Christina is this symbol for everyone who has been left out or felt outside? This symbol for our uncles, our sons, our brothers, our sisters, the refugees who are aching the immigrants, the homeless. And this painting, 
becomes this beautiful reminder to us of everything that Jesus taught, that it's time to lay the ladders down, to come to the table this Thanksgiving and to see in sometimes people that are difficult to love our common humanity, to receive this unconditional gift and to remind ourselves over and over again about the love and the grace and the freedom that Jesus gives us. So my question to you is, will you lay the ladder down? Will you decide to let your life be redefined by the gift instead of the rungs that you have set of difference in our world? May this Thanksgiving and this table that you share in be different and filled with meaning and purpose and love this year. Amen.